Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Finance Simplified, the official podcast for StreetFins. We're here to break down the world of finance for you to understand from a relatable perspective with discussions with experts. This is episode 16, and today I have Alex Patel with me again. How have you been since our last episode? Been doing well. I recently started my second quarter of college, so I'm looking forward to taking a bunch of new classes. I've also started second semester of college as well at USC. So how has the first week back been? The first week back has been relatively normal. I think we're all finally figuring out how college works. Yeah, I feel the same way. I've definitely gotten into the groove a lot faster compared to my first semester of freshman year. Are you planning on doing anything differently this upcoming quarter after your experience this past fall? Not particularly, though I would like to have more of the social aspect of college. I'll definitely try and be more involved in clubs and other activities. Yeah, same here. There are a lot of clubs and activities at USC that I'm also going to try and join this upcoming semester. So Alex, this is part two of our conversation with the former vice chairman of Goldman Sachs, Suzanne Nora Johnson, on the topic of simplifying investment banking. What did we talk about in part one? So in part one, we got to learn the basic functions in investment banking, the history of investment banking, the difference between investment banks and commercial banks, and the difference between the buy side and the sell side, as well as how they interact. We'll be getting into more specialized investment banking activities like underwriting and market making, the latest trends in investment banking, investment banking as a career, Suzanne's legendary career at Goldman Sachs, and much more in this part. But before we get into this episode, we just want to remind you that if you are learning from our episodes and want to keep supporting what we're doing, we'd be eternally grateful if you gave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Additionally, we'd love to know what feedback you have for us. So fill out the feedback form in the description to let us know how we're doing and what you'd like to see from us going forward. So now, let's continue simplifying investment banking. From the minds of the students at StreetFins, this is Finance Simplified, the podcast that simplifies the seemingly complex and confusing world of money. I'm your host, Rohan Gupta. One of the more important functions of an investment bank is you know, IPOs, mergers and acquisitions. So let's just get started with the IPOs. The term that I guess is really used with an IPO is the term underwriting. So could you walk us through the process of underwriting and then also how that just generally leads to the IPO? So part of an investment bank's ability to sell an IPO is investors trusting that they're not selling them schlock. And that's a technical term for garbage. And investors want to believe that, in fact, what they are being offered has been reviewed and has been diligenced, meaning the analytical work has been done so that they can feel confident that the management team of the IPO are not crooks, are not frauds. Even if they're clean, are they people that can actually run a business? They want to believe that the investment bank in the underwriting process has done checks to make sure that the suppliers and the customers and the products of that company that is taking public are all what they say they are. And that's easier to do from a retrospective, meaning a historical perspective, but they're also asking the investment banks to talk about what they think the prospects are for that business, one, surviving, growing, being able to pay dividends in the future, 
And so the underwriting process does require a lot of expertise and knowledge of the market. And that's where you need to count on the analytical rigor and honesty of both the sell side investment bankers and then their research colleagues who will be talking to investors and their sales colleagues that will be talking to investors to make sure that they can sell quality product. And so that underwriting process is usually structured in a way that there's a team on the particular transaction who's doing the work, but it typically has to go to a very senior level committee in the firm. And some firms that's the top of the house and some firms it's kind of a divisional top of the house to review the opportunity to see if it's really what people think it is. And so it's really a reputational issue for the investment banks because most investment banks, most offerings are not guaranteeing results. It's upon their reputation and their historical track record of bringing good IPOs to market. So if an investment bank has a poor track record of underwriting, their ability to sell IPOs to investors would get short-circuited very, very quickly. Now, sometimes it's not just the underwriting, it's what are the market conditions that you're selling into. And there may be certain market conditions that nothing can be sold because the market is so in peril. So you saw in March of this year when COVID became a widespread problem in the US and had far reaching economic impacts, there were certain stocks and there were certain IPOs that you couldn't do them even if they were the highest quality companies in the world because the market seized up. But absent when the market seizes up, you want to be able to have the credibility that people trust. The other thing that becomes critical, not just to the primary underwriting, but this goes back to the secondary market, is if I'm an investor and I buy an IPO company and all of a sudden the market gets really choppy, if I don't think that investment bank has the power in the secondary market to buy shares to help the price not fall through the floor, that gives me great pause too. And part of the reason that niche investment banks have a tougher time during certain market cycles is if they don't have the firepower to help in the secondary market, investors might get nervous. Yeah, and it's really interesting that even if you have the right investment bank doing your IPO, there are so many market conditions that could dictate how that goes. And especially right now in the IPO market, you're seeing these blank check special purpose acquisition companies pop up. Can you explain a little bit about why these are popping up in the first place and maybe what the future of these are and just kind of the basics of a blank check SPAC? Yes, let me just provide really high level. So because interest rates have been so low for so long, investors are looking for market opportunities. So if you're a management team that has been able to find good investment opportunities and you have a track record of that, then you may set up one of these vehicles and say, 
just trust me. If you put the capital in, give me a blank check, quote unquote, I will find good opportunities for you. And because people are so starved for attractive returns, they're much more willing to play in them. If the interest rate environment was normalized, and by normalized, I mean you didn't have zero or negative interest rates in the world, people would likely require a lot more from SPACs than they do today. But it's a phenomenon of giving people literally capital to put to work. And because so many institutions need capital put to work. So just to give you a very simple example. So take a company like Ford or IBM or take the County of Los Angeles or the County of Santa Clara. They have pensions that they need to pay because people are retiring. And those pensions assumed much greater returns than zero interest rates. So those institutions are trying to find a combination of enough liquidity so that they can pay people their pensions, but that they can earn enough money to pay pensioners into the future. So I would say a SPAC is definitely a byproduct of people needing investments and willing to take much greater risk than they would in a vehicle where they really know what the vehicle is investing in. Yeah, definitely. And I think we've covered really the underwriting process and buy side and sell side. Now, we haven't really dug into, I guess, the sales and trading division. So I think a big part of investment banks that people don't really understand, maybe think it's a black box, is this idea of market making. So what is market making and how is it really, I guess, changed in the past few decades? What does this idea and this term really mean? So again, this goes back to fundamentally, so let's go past the IPO. Let's look at the secondary market. So if I'm an investor and I want to buy a stock, I want to know who can I trade with that actually knows the stock really well, has invested capital in it, and is in the flows. And so... Investment banks who have secondary market-making activities are basically trading that security pretty continuously among large investors. So they know kind of where is a price that I could actually get a transaction done. So if you think about if you have a surfboard or skateboard and you try to sell it, you can go to Craigslist or you can go to some marketplace but it's relatively limited and you don't necessarily understand that either the seller is going to kind of deliver the product to you or that you're actually going to get the money that it costs. By market making, it's a safe way for investors to trade shares knowing that the institution has the capital to pay and it will be there if it says it will be to buy it. So, Many shares in the stock market are called very thinly traded, meaning there's hardly anybody making a market in it. And when liquidity dries up and there's a disaster, that, and when I say disaster, I don't mean just for that stock, I mean for the market, that stock will sink like a rock because there's no one 
on the other side wanting to buy it. By having a lot of liquidity and having market makers, it provides a floor on the stock when conditions get very treacherous. And it's a commodity business, meaning it's very thin margins. It's a lot of large investors are trading among themselves as well. Now, I kind of want to transition over to the career aspects of investment banking. Now, I guess investment banking is something that a lot of college students want to start out in. So they want to do maybe a two-year analyst stint. But what is, I guess, the typical pathway for an investment banker? Do they tend to stay in, in the field for a long period of time? What are some of the exit options? First of all, I think it's an absolutely fantastic analyst position, meaning I think it's an absolutely no-lose career position for the average individual to start in because the training is deep, it's broad, you learn both technical, business, commercial, social skills that are unbelievably important. And you then still have incredible opportunities to go to buy side, to other sell side, to the government, to a startup. You get extraordinary career mobility by doing it. It Again, and there's been an evolution. When I first started, analyst programs were just beginning. They didn't really exist. And people would go to business school and then come in as an associate and go up the ranks. Then there was a period of time where analysts had to do their two-year stint and then go back to business school. Now there's some people who are analysts who just go straight into a career path and avoid business school. There's other people who go to business school, I think, to get more exposure, both to different relationships and other people that are out there. But the career path of the analyst is unlimited possibility in terms of what you do from there. I think the associate career path, like a lot of professional service jobs, you probably have your most mobility at two to six years in, just because that's a sweet spot of people having a lot of expertise and experience and not being that expensive. The same thing would be true in a law firm. Same thing would be true in a consulting firm. So I would say that's the career path. There's not a typical one because people do so many different things today. Next, I asked what qualities sell-side and buy-side institutions look for in people, and if there is any difference between them. Well, I think for the highest quality institutions, there's a lot more overlap than one might think. So I think most importantly, they're looking whether people have what I'll call character and competence. So are they ethical? Do they have integrity? There's lots of opportunities for conflicts and bad behavior. And so if you don't have people that are absolutely the gold standard in their ethics, you take a huge risk by hiring them. I think that's true on both sides. On the competence side, I think both are looking for people that are extremely analytical, intelligent, and are very, very numerate in one way or another. That doesn't mean they have to be, you know, quantitative masters of the universe, but they have to be very comfortable with finance. I think in more traditional investment banks, and again, by that I mean as well, the JP Morgans of the world, as well as the Goldman Sachs and the Morgan Stanley's of the world, they are looking for people who can also deal with people. 
because both the relationship development aspects of it and also being able to be good character reads and being able to work in a very social enterprise are important in certain places in an investment bank. In some of the best buy side organizations, that would be true that they would want to make sure that people were very good reads of people and had good EQ so that they weren't dysfunctional in a big organization. But there are many jobs on the buy side that are more solitary and require less marketing and extroverted skills. So even if you look at the buy side, I'll use private equity as an example. I'm sure you'll have people on this podcast in private equity. At the junior level, you want to have incredible horsepower analytically and also in terms of people's ability to work. As you rise in private equity, a buy side job, if you don't have incredibly good social skills and ability to get deals, uh, because remember, private equity, even though it's a buy side function, is still about getting deals. It's still about finding investments. And so if you're not good at some level from an EQ and a sociability and getting people to do things with you and for you, you're not going to be successful as you go up the ranks. But in the lower ranks, the analytical horsepower probably gets you a lot of places and you may not need to have as much sociability if you are in a large institution. And by sociability, I don't mean being social. I mean being able to collaborate, cooperate, understand people generally. The other thing I would say, and again, this was historic and I think it's changed, is the sell side used to have extraordinarily demanding work requirements in terms of the time spent, the intensity, the lack of let up, and certain parts of the buy side traditionally were viewed as having more of a lifestyle and more of a nine to five. I think that's a misnomer because it really depends what's the buy side organization you're talking about and what has been its track record and kind of where is it in its evolution. Yeah, so thanks for sort of highlighting the vast opportunity and the vast potential that investment banking as a career, when you're starting out, the sort of wide potential it has. Now, I'm curious to know, how did your career at Goldman Sachs unfold? Like, when you got started, what were you doing? And then how did you eventually work your way up to vice chairman position? So first of all, I probably didn't have a typical path in the sense that I was a lawyer and I was practicing law. So when I came in, I came in as an associate not as an analyst, and I didn't go to business school. And I joined a group that was called Private Finance, and it was a combination of private equity, venture capital, private placements, leasing. It was one of the few places that was doing emerging markets. And I came to Goldman Sachs, and you remember my personal story, because I thought I was only going to stay for two years and go back to the World Bank. Within that first two years, I would say the assignments were extraordinary. They range from representing small banks, doing private placements for media companies, taking media companies private, to doing nuclear plant financing with a big mix. But within my first two years, one of the things I had the opportunity to work on was there was a crisis of all of the major commercial banks around the world 
because of the pricing of oil, particularly in the emerging markets. So all the big banks, and particularly those that had a lot of exposure to Latin America, were having to reschedule their debts. And so one of my assignments was basically to come up with ways that the commercial banks could rectify the situation of all their debt. So that's when it became very clear to me that I was sitting in meetings with finance ministers from around the world and people from World Bank kind of affiliates that were probably 40 years my senior. And because there were no limits on your abilities to succeed if you worked hard and you were analytical and you were willing to take risks. So I had two years in private finance and then moved to something called the Financial Institutions Group where I represented only financial institutions. And that's when I started spending more time on understanding opportunities in the emerging markets, particularly with respect to the situation I explained to you. And I decided I would stay another couple of years at Goldman Sachs because the opportunities were so unique to get a firsthand look at geopolitical events and the financing of extraordinarily important institutions that made or break the world economy. After a couple of years of doing that, it became very clear to me that there was an opportunity for the firm to participate in Latin America in a much bigger way. And this is when kind of globality was really just starting to break open. So I worked with the head of the firm to develop a strategy for Latin America that cut across all of the major divisions at Goldman Sachs. And so it was kind of building a business across the different lines and having an opportunity to meet people who had very different functions in the investment bank and to get very creative about how you could serve that important part of the world. I like business building and I saw that there was a similar opportunity to build a business in the biotechnology and healthcare field. So I then spent a couple of years starting to build a global healthcare practice that spanned everything from startups to the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. And that included both M&A, financing, kind of creative problem solving. Uh, and what I loved about it was it required a real understanding globally of certain businesses, especially pharmaceuticals, but it also gave you an extraordinary look into domestic businesses because healthcare services was very much a highly regulated kind of state, local, national business. And it looked different in every country that you looked at it. So after six years of the firm, I was kind of starting to think about what would I do next and whether I should go back to the World Bank. And I was fortunate enough to be named a partner of the firm. After 9-11, you may know there was an attorney general of, of New York called Elliot Spitzer, who went after Wall Street for the issue of sell-side research being very conflicted. So the head of the firm asked me if I'd be willing to take on 
running that division because it was a division the same way investment banking division, sales and trading, asset management, research was another division. And so it needed to be reconceived and transformed, not just to respond to the government. So I spent a lot of time with the government trying to sort that out, but it also allowed you to think very entrepreneurially. How do you think about this function going forward? As you all know, information to me and data has not only become more important, but it's probably one of the most important assets that any organization can have. So I did that for a couple of years, and then I was asked to be the vice chairman of the firm. And I spent time helping to develop something called the Global Markets Institute inside the firm, where we looked at very important kind of issues around the world that needed to be solved and to bring different stakeholders together, whether that was governments, whether that was philanthropic communities, whether that was civil society, investors, companies, to try to help solve some of those big problems. And then Martin Luther King's birthday in 2007, I was coming to another two-year anniversary, and I thought, okay, it's time. You can do more good outside now than you can do inside. I'd had an extraordinarily wonderful opportunity. I had worked with great people, but I thought now it's time to do something outside. And I left on Martin Luther King's birthday because I wanted a reminder every year, have you done something that's good and important versus the year before? So it was more a way just to kick myself to make sure there was a natural marker. Well, that is very incredible. And this is the final question. And it's something I ask all my guests. And because this is a podcast that is geared towards students, my final question is, knowing what you know today and what you've learned during your career on Wall Street about finance, economics, investing, and just the world of money in general, what lessons do you recommend for students? So I think it's one of the most critical skill sets to potentially have, because I think it gives you one of the greatest opportunities to do good and to give people the tools they need to survive. I also think it's very hard to ultimately get security in the world unless people have the opportunity to prosper. And so if you want, whether it's your children, your family, your country, your world to prosper, you have to understand money and you have to understand how it works uh, and how it can be used as a force for extraordinary betterment of the world. And I think it's only become more important as other technological tools continue to advance. So some of finance will be extraordinarily democratized through certain platforms and certain platforms will make uh, the divides between rich and poor even worse. So if you don't have an understanding of the fundamentals, it's hard to kind of think about that going forward. Well, this was so incredible getting to know you and to get to know your background and how it's so unique from the rest of who we'd consider in finance. Uh, it was a terrific pleasure to have you on and we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's extraordinarily important. And I think to your listeners, you know, who are primarily students, I think they should know that this podcast would be relevant to most people I know. Even when I've gone through airports and seen like TSA people after hours 
trying to do financial literacy for themselves, or when I've seen big companies do stock offerings or give people stock-based compensation, people often don't understand it. So if your listeners can start developing these skills now, they will be invaluable to them in whatever setting they choose to pursue. Hey everyone, that was the end of part two of our two-part interview with Suzanne Nora Johnson on simplifying investment banking. We hope you enjoyed and learned more about how investment banking works from her. The entire conversation was amazing. Alex, what were some of the key takeaways from the second part? So we went over some more of the activities and ideas present in investment banking. We discussed underwriting, where banks help companies go public by doing the necessary due diligence, pricing their stock, finding buyers, and holding shares on their balance sheets to ensure that the stock is initially stable. We went over a recent trend, SPACs, where a team of professional investors will create a non-operational entity, a shell company, and take it public through an IPO, then use the money they raise from that IPO to buy a private company that wants to go public. It's really a bet on the team and their ability to find a good investment, not unlike giving your money to a hedge fund and having them invest for you. Investment banks have been very crucial in creating these opportunities. Yeah, and we also went over market making. When you break down what market making really is, it really is all about making sure that there are always buyers and sellers, in other words, a market, for some asset. Investment banks have their market making divisions ensure that they can always be a buyer for some asset. However, market makers don't buy and hold the stock. Instead, they will find a buyer in mere seconds to sell an asset too. Market makers are always moving inventory of traded shares from buyers to sellers. One analogy is like a car dealership. When you go to a car dealer, he's willing to buy your used car at a price and sell you a car at another price. He is making a market for cars. If he buys your car, he will offer to resell it at a slight profit to the next buyer he sees. Either way, the market maker keeps ensuring that there is a market for cars all day long. He keeps some inventory, but the idea is to keep moving it because that's how he makes money. When applying this to stocks, market makers ensure that stocks remain tradable and have liquidity and continue to have some value by being that continuous buyer and seller. This function that investment banks perform is hugely important to the way our markets work. Exactly. And I also enjoyed learning more about the careers in investment banking. Having a job at an investment bank can provide a tremendous amount of learning, but it can also be demanding. Suzanne explained that she initially wanted to work at the World Bank, but eventually ended up working in investment banking. So while certain skills are crucial in investment banking, such as being personable and good with numbers, you can come from a wide range of backgrounds into the field. Agreed. Well, Alex, that wraps up our part two conversation and takeaways. As we mentioned in our winter update episode, we'll be teasing out who the next episode's guest is at the end of every interview. And the first person who sends an email to us at fspodcast at streetfins.com with the correct guest will get a shout out in the next episode. So here are the two hints for our next guest. One. He's a professor of public policy and health economics at the University of Southern California. And two, he's a founding partner of Precision Health Economics. The next episode will be out on March 1st, so we'll talk to you all then. Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It truly means the world to us. If you like this episode and others, let us know by subscribing and giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts and following us on Spotify. Share us with your friends and check us out on Instagram and Twitter, both at StreetFins. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rohan Invest. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email fspodcast at streetfins.com. Thanks once again to Suzanne Nora Johnson for her insights today. 
I hope you understand the topic of investment banking in a more simplified way. Once again, we're really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content. Join the Streetfins community and tell your friends about us so that they can learn about finance too. We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.